in the words of the unfortunately memorable 1991 Salt and Peppa song, let's talk about sex. <sighs> yeah, what a beginning, huh? I made the mistake of pulling that song up on YouTube. Uh, Jody told me that new song that we just sang, When Heaven Breaks Through, she told me that that's been in her head all week. And I thought to myself, I wish that had been in my head all week. Uh, that, that was, this was a painful week. Uh, but the sexual drive is an incredibly powerful human impulse. It, it's so powerful that companies have figured out how to use its allure to help sell their products. Uh, other people have used it to try to find a marriage partner or to make money or, or to even manipulate. They use it almost like currency that if they will exchange a few sexual favors, they're able to get some other things all because the sexual drive is this incredibly powerful human impulse. And yet we live in a society that for a couple of centuries has kind of been ruled by a Judeo-Christian worldview. And it's considered very traditional, and most people would label it as conservative. And so even people in our day and age who completely disagree with this Judeo-Christian worldview, they can still recite to you the rules. If you ask them, what are the rules of this sexual ethic? They would say, well, Judeo-Christian worldview says that you should not have sex before you're married. That once you are married, you should not have sex with anyone else. That you really shouldn't have sex with someone of the same gender. You should not have sex with more than one person at a time. And you shouldn't even really watch other people engage in sexual activity. I mean, they, they know the, the rules. And yet, even though we know the rules, the sexual impulse is so strong, we break these rules all the time. I mean, for instance, 25% of married men and 15% of married women admit to having had an affair. Now, I honestly think those statistics are probably low because those are the ones who are willing to admit that they've actually had an affair. It's probably a little higher. And yet, of those who admit to having had at least one affair, 60% of them say it was wrong. Now, maybe that's because they felt the damage and the repercussions of it, but still, they knew it was wrong. They should not do this, but the impulse was so strong, they found themselves doing it anyway. Or go to this idea of watching other people have sex. Most people call this pornography. Just 18 to 30-year-olds, a 2017 statistic said that 79% of men and 76% of women view pornography at least once a month. And yet, I think it's like almost 80% of women and like 60-some percent of men say that viewing pornography is wrong. And so you've got a large number of people who say, yeah, that's, that's not right. But the impulse is so strong, they give into it and they engage in it anyway. So what that means is that today, some of you are probably really conflicted right now. Because of this strong sexual impulse that is within us, there's a curiosity you're, you're wondering, what is going to be said today? What's, what's going to happen? Like, maybe something's going to be a little tantalizing. Maybe, you know, something will be said that'll help spice up our sex life within our marriage. You know, maybe something will be said that will, like, give me permission to keep going with my little secret life. And yet, there's another part of you that's scared. Scared that I'm going to end up saying something that's going to make you feel condemned. That's going to make you remember these past sexual mistakes. The, these things that are going to make you feel like I am dirty. I am bad. I am evil. This is awful. So we're, we're curious and, and yet we're scared. 
That, that's why we have to talk about this, you guys. The, yes, it's awkward to, to sit here and talk about this incredibly private thing and talk about it in a public forum like this. But because we have a culture around that keeps saying all sorts of things on this topic, we have to go and look, does God have anything to say about this? And if he does, how is it different than what the culture says? And which one is right? Because there's so much confusion that it leads us to sometimes think, well, maybe the traditional Judeo-Christian worldview is correct and that sex is almost kind of dirty and it should only be used for like, you know, making a family and, and keeping human population growth happening. Or, or maybe it's like the culture says, it's just something to be enjoyed. It's something to get. It's a way to manipulate people to get what you want. But I hope that today when you walk out of here, you have a very different view. That it's not dirty, it's not just for pleasure, it's not just for, you know, manipulating people, that, that it is actually something that God created. And that makes it a good thing, a beautiful thing, because God does not make bad things. But I also hope you walk out of here not thinking that sex is like an ultimate thing. That instead of something that is the greatest in the world, they're designed to fulfill us, that it's actually designed for us to find connection with a spouse and with God. Now, before we jump into the scriptures, I realize I need to say one thing. Because this is such a sensitive topic, I want you to realize that there is grace. Every single one of us listening to this is sexually broken. Everyone. Like, even if you manage to die a virgin, having never even touched another person, you would still die sexually broken. Because you see, when sin entered the story, it didn't just affect a few things, it affected everything. And that means it also affected the sexual part of us. And so we are sexually broken. Which means... That if you have engaged in some activities that bring you regret and shame, you need to hear that you are forgiven. Because Jesus' death on the cross was so powerful that it could forgive all sin, even your sexual sin. I realize some of you may be sitting there saying, Aaron, you don't understand. Like, you don't know the things that I have done. Like, I, I am, like, if, you, if there really was a phrase in the dictionary of sexually broken, like, there would be my picture. And I need you to hear loud and clear that you are forgiven through Christ. And so because God forgives you, you need to forgive you. If you won't forgive yourself for these past sexual indiscretions, then you're not going to be able to really listen in. Because first of all, you're telling God, well, I don't think the cross of Jesus was enough. But, but also, you're going to be sitting there beating yourself up so much. You're not going to be able to receive what God has for you today. Because believe it or not, God's rules, if you will, are not there to rob you of joy. They're actually to protect you so that you can find greater joy in the sexual area of life. So I need you to forgive yourself. I need you to let God's grace wash over you so that you can now lean in and listen in to what God says to you and to all of us about his design and purpose for sex. So let's pray. Father, as we...
So we talk about this incredibly uh, private, for some of us even painful area. I just pray that you would just wash us with your grace, that your presence, your Holy Spirit would just flood this place, and that you would oversee this entire conversation. Lord, I pray for anyone who's just beating themselves up because of either past sins or even present sins. And I pray, Father, that they would realize that they are forgiven, that their future does not have to be dictated by their past, that there is healing found in you, and they can find true joy in this area because actually true joy is found in you, not in the bedroom. So God, I just pray that you would just work beyond me and my own weaknesses and my inability to say things eloquently. And I pray that you would just put it in a way that speaks to the hearts and minds of your people here today. So God, have your way right now with us. No matter where we're at in our spiritual journey, no matter what our stories might be, may you teach us and call us into something greater. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible with you today, would you go ahead and open it up to the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, don't worry about it. I've got the scripture up on the screen, but I'm just going to encourage you after our worship gathering, please stop by our Give and Grow table and take a Bible with you. We've got two different translations back there. We'll find the one that will fit you best, so we'd love for that to be our gift to you. Or if you have a smartphone, download a Bible to your phone. That way you always have a Bible with you wherever you go with your phone. So right now you'll probably notice the people in our church family who are pulling out their phones. They're not headed to Facebook or Instagram. At least I hope they're not. Uh, and uh, they are actually uh, opening up their Bibles. All right, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians, let me kind of set the stage for what we're going to be hearing today. Uh, the word sex comes from the Latin sexus, which actually has a root word in Latin of sacare, sacar. I'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced. I'm not fluent in Latin. But this word sacar means to divide, to cut, to sever. When I first read that, it kind of made me a little scared. Like, is this talking about like circumcision or, you know, even worse? Um, but no, what it means is the, the root word is where we get words like section or dissect or even like the sect of a religion. It, it's our way dividing things up so that we can, in a sense, organize it and understand it. All right? and, and so that's why when you go and fill out a survey, they might ask for your sex and they're expecting you to put like male or female. Now, I realize the day and age that we live in that that is starting to change. But it's, it's, it's the company's way of trying to understand who is it we're trying to, to serve and benefit? How can we make more money? How does this appeal to those who call themselves men and those who call themselves women? And it's just their way to put us into sections to, to, to arrange all of this. And so the etymology of the word sex then means to, in a sense, try to bridge that gap. That, that these genders that have been bisected get brought together within marriage. All right, so that's, that's the idea behind this. But you see, I, I believe that sin separates. That, that when sin entered into the story, it twisted everything. And, and so therefore, it separates. That for instance, when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, it caused a separation in their relationship between God and man. Or when sin, uh, or like when a husband sins against his wife, whether it's because he cheated on her or he lied to her, or maybe he was physically or uh, verbally abusive, you know, it, it, that sin causes a separation. And, and, and so sin causes these things to all break apart, whereas we're trying to bring everything together. So that's, that's this idea behind sex. But the thing is, sex was created before Adam and Eve sinned. It's not a result of the fall. 
it, it was actually there before they ever ate of that forbidden fruit, which means God is the one who created sex. So therefore he has a purpose behind it. And as we're going to see a little later today, it's also why he has the right to tell us what we can and cannot do with our bodies. We live in a day and an age where a lot is said about this topic and it brings a lot of confusion. The thing is, we're not the first society to have this kind of confusion about sex. There was once an ancient city that was even more of a sexual mess than our culture right now. The city's name was Corinth. Uh, Corinth was located in the nation of Greece, and it was right on the isthmus between the northern and southern portions. So if you wanted to go from the north to the south, you'd have to pass right through Corinth. But if you notice on the map, there's two, uh, it, it, being an isthmus, there's water on both sides. And so a lot of ship traffic came in as well because it was a really short jaunt to just go across that, that land mass than to go around the rest of Greece. And so a lot of trade traffic came through Corinth, which meant lots and lots of different people from lots and lots of different cultures ended up finding themselves in Corinth. Well, they bring with them their attitudes, their, their values, their worldview, including their thoughts about sex. And you ended up with this big mishmash of confusion. For instance, scholars say that there was at least one temple in Corinth that housed a thousand prostitutes that men would come to and visit as part of their worship to this pagan deity. So that's one thing that was going on within the city. But it was also within the nation of Greece. Uh, Greek philosophy had really taken a hold and really had spread. And so they were saturated in their own philosophy. Well, several Greek philosophers believed that, that a man and a woman's relationship was not nearly as good as that between the same sexes. So the same sex attraction was actually exalted above regular attraction. And so that's being thrown into the mix. But then you have the Roman Empire that was ruling over all of this. And their attitudes towards sex were also influencing things. In Roman culture, pretty much every rich man had slaves, some designated just for the purpose of sex. And sometimes it was boys and girls, all ages, because the sexual impulse was so powerful. And so this was their way to try to satisfy themselves. And so you've got this city where these people are living and all these different ideas and sexual values are coming in. And at one time, this man by the name of Paul visits the city, starts sharing the gospel, and some people think it's true. They believe that Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of their sins, and so they began to form a church. And they're starting to grow in this relationship with Jesus. And Paul ends up raising up some others, some elders, some pastors, leaves it to them, and takes off to go plant other churches. But word has gotten to him that this church is a mess. Of all of the churches that Paul wrote to, the Corinthian church was probably the messiest. One of the areas that they were really struggling with was this area of sex because of the culture they found themselves in. They were starting to buy into some of the things the culture was saying. In fact, they were taking some of the ideas and values and taking it even further. And Paul hears about it and is deeply bothered. And so he's got a right to them. And as he's writing to them about all sorts of different areas, he's trying to help them see, here's how the gospel speaks into all of these slots. And one of those slots he had to address was this area of sex. And so because Paul was speaking to a very messy place, it seems very appropriate for us to go since we have kind of a messy society right now when it comes to this idea of sex. 
And we need to go and see how did Paul try to pastor them towards Jesus through this? Because I think it will help us as well. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 6 verses 12 all the way through chapter 7 verse 5. So it is quite a lot. Now, if you're like me, when someone starts reading, you tend to tune out. You, you, you check out. So right now, some of you are going to start thinking about your to-do list. You're going to think about what you're going to have for lunch. You're going to think about the snow that's going on outside. All these things are going on. All right? And what I'm going to encourage you to do, as soon as your mind starts to wander, come back. Remind yourself, stick with this because you need to get this because God has given this to you to help you in this incredibly important area. So let's read 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Well, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Well, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or, or, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but... Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I realize that is a lot. To be honest, that passage right there deserves its own sermon series. But we're just going to break this down into two points, a very simple outline. I feel that what Paul does in this is he first gives the point of what the culture believes is acceptable, and then he gives a counterpoint of what he believes God says is acceptable. So let's start with the, the point. What is it that the culture around them says is acceptable? And it's found right there in verse 12. He says it twice. All things are lawful for me. Uh, another way to put it is, I can do what I want. All right, it, it, It's my body. I can join it up with whomever I want. Just stay out of, of my, er, this area of my life, right? Th this is mine. And, and he even shows a little more of what the, the culture at that time believed. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That, that was just another way of saying, hey, when you're hungry, you eat. You know, when you're tired, you sleep. When you're horny, you have sex. Like, it, that's just the way it is. That's what the culture was saying. Then Paul begins to point out, no, actually... God has something better. That's what the culture says is acceptable. Actually, it, it's something else. By the way, 
I don't think our American culture is really that different than the Corinthian culture. I think we just add a little phrase to it to make it sound better. That we would say, all things are lawful for me, as long as no one else gets hurt. That, that way we can justify it. Like, well, once you say you're married, you know, that's what makes affairs wrong. Or, you know, rape is wrong. But out, outside of that, no, it's, as long as no one gets hurt, you know, it, it, it's totally fine. You, you can do whatever you want. Because all things are lawful for me. And I, and I love how Paul starts his uh, counterpoint. It, it's almost like he's saying, okay, yeah, you're right. All things are lawful for you. But then notice what he says. But not all things are helpful. I uh, have a, uh, uh, actually more of acquaintances, um, who uh, had a, uh, a nice house, nice neighborhood, and they, they really loved their neighborhood. But they were double income, making a ton of money. And so just going with the American dream, they, they felt like they should buy a nicer, bigger house. And, and they did. I mean, they got several kids, and so they, they bought a, a bigger place. Well, a few weeks or maybe, maybe it was a few months after, I remember talking with the wife and I'm like, hey, I, you know, how's it gone with the new house? And she says, well, to be honest, um, I think we made a mistake. I was like, what do you mean? She says, well, we actually find ourselves back in our old neighborhood because there's no kids in our new neighborhood. And so we keep going back for our kids to go play with all their old friends. She says, and plus this new house is so big that we don't really spend the time together like we used to. And we don't interact. And she goes, I feel like we've actually all kind of grown a little distant from each other. You see, sin tries to teach you that if you want more happiness, you need to have more whatever. More money, more toys, more prestige, more house. But what Paul is saying here is that getting more, even though you can do it, doesn't necessarily mean you should do it. Because more does not always equal more happiness, as my friend was discovering with her new house. The same happens in the area of sex. So often it's just this idea that if we just have more sex or more partners, therefore we'll have more happiness. And Paul's saying, you know what? You can. I mean, you can go and and do all these things, but it's not necessarily going to be helpful to you. Some translations say it's not beneficial. Like this isn't going to get you what you're truly longing for. Because again, we are so often using sex like bumper cars in the night, just bumping into each other, hoping that something sticks. Because really what we're looking for is that connection. We're looking for longing. It's more than just the physical pleasure. We're actually looking for someone to accept us physically, emotionally, mentally, that we are good enough that this person would give all of themselves to us. We're looking for that connection. We want the dissection bridged and brought together. And that's why so often we're just trying to get more think that's what's going to happen. And Paul's saying, you know what? Actually, it's not. Yeah, you, you can go and do it, but I, I'm telling you, God's got a better way. Let's go and look and see how God says we should use sex. And I think a lot of Paul's argument hinges on the last two verses of chapter 6. So look at verses 19 and 20 with me. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is where the culture around us says, hey, it's your body. You can do with it whatever you want. And that's the big argument. But Paul is saying, actually, it's not your body. First, you've got to realize that God created humans, 
And when he created humans, he put his image in them. It, it gave them a will and a personality and an intellect that just separates them from the race, rest of creation. That image is almost like God's brand. Almost like saying, this one is a lot like me. This one belongs to me. But what happened was even though we were made by God, we thought more would get us happiness. And so Adam and Eve wanted to have more fruit by breaking the one rule. They wanted to be more like God. The pursuit of more actually gave them less. They didn't get what they wanted. And that image, that brand became blurred. It was still there. They still belonged to God. But sin came in and just wiped it and messed it up. And so sin ended up snatching us from God. And so then, even though we already belong to God, God did the unthinkable. He went and purchased us back from sin. In the Old Testament, there is a prophet by the name of Hosea. God tells Hosea in chapter one of the book that bears his name to go and marry a woman. And he does. He finds a woman and her name was Gomer. Now, she had the unfortunate first name, but she also had a very unfortunate profession. She was a prostitute. And God specifically told him, this is who I want you to marry. Now, you've got to realize, in, in our day and age, there are people who are beginning to actually argue for sex worker rights. And it's not viewed as the, the low type of occupation that it once has held throughout history. But especially in ancient Judaism, like to be a prostitute meant like your dad probably didn't love you. He didn't care for you. He didn't own you. Uh, maybe her dad passed away. But then she would just be abused. No one truly loved her. And she probably was going through hell. And I highly doubt as a little girl, her dream was to become a prostitute. She probably was like most little girls, wanting a husband, having some kids. And all of a sudden, some guy comes along and says, will you marry me? And she's now going to get her dream. She gets the husband who's devoted to her. She gets the kids. And, and sure enough, you see them starting to have children. And God tells them to name them really weird names. But that's beside the point. But she finally was getting everything she probably ever longed for. But there was something broken inside of her. And she ended up leaving her husband and her children and went back to prostitution. And she probably ended up with a guy who became more like a pimp. Because then we see in chapter three, God tells Hosea, go and get your wife. But when he goes to get her, he has to pay for her like a slave. He has to redeem her to purchase her. She's already his wife. He shouldn't have to pay for her. And yet he does. And God made poor Hosea go through this awful circumstance so that God could show not only his love for Israel, but his love for all of us. Because you see, God created us, put his image in us like a wedding ring, says these ones belong to me. And yet we walked away. We went into our whoredom. We went into sin thinking that we could find better happiness away from God. But even though we already bore the image of God, we already were branded, we belonged to him. God went and paid the penalty through the death of Jesus. The blood of Christ was the payment so that he could purchase you back. And so what that means is that you are doubly God's. Like you were made by him and you were now purchased by him. And that is why you have no right to decide what to do with your body. Because it belongs to God. 
Paul says in there that, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Here, here was Corinth with all these temples, including one that housed all these prostitutes. And now he's saying, no, actually, it's not about a building. It's about you. And when you placed your faith in Jesus, when your eyes were open to this gospel, God's Holy Spirit came to indwell within you. And so now you were made by God. You've been purchased by God. And now you have God dwelling within you. That's why God has the right to tell us what we can and cannot do with our bodies. But the thing is, God is not a killjoy when it comes to this area. He's not trying to rob us of some joy and satisfaction and pleasure. He's actually trying to protect us, knowing that if we do it the culture's way, it's not going to be beneficial. It's not going to get us what we truly want. We're not going to find true connection. But if we will to fully submit to Christ, will allow this gospel to totally lead us, now we begin to see what God intended for the area of sex. If This is probably a bad illustration, but I'm going to go with it anyway. If you were a car, the title to your body would be held by God. His signature is on that title written in the blood of Christ. And so you as the car cannot decide where it should go and how to care for it. Really, the car needs to surrender to its owner. And the owner decides, here's how this car is going to be driven. Here's how we're going to care for it. And God is in love with you. So he knows best how to care for you. So you do not have the right to do whatever you want with your body. God does. And God says, I've designed your body to enjoy sex within marriage. And that's what Paul heads into next. Down in chapter 7, skip down to verse 3. We'll do 3 through 5. The husband should give... Uh, okay, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So if we read that and we continue on with this uh, dumb car illustration, imagine that you're at your wedding And you're standing there on the stage and the pastor's there, you know, going through the message. And then he's having you exchange vows. And in that moment, it's like God says, all right, the title to your body, I'm giving as a gift to your spouse. It's still not yours. You do not have the authority to do with your body whatever you want. God still owns it because he created it and he died for it. And now he's giving it to your spouse. It's like his wedding gift. He says, it's on loan. I'm leasing it to you. So I want you to take care of this body. Because I love this person so much. Oh, uh, by the way, but the title to your body, I'm giving that to your spouse. And so you still don't have the title to your own body. It now belongs to your spouse. That is why you can't just go and engage in activities with whomever you want, whenever you want. It is to be reserved for this place. This is why it says in Hebrews to, to keep the marriage bed pure. Because no one else is supposed to be in that bed, whether physically or mentally. This is reserved for a husband and a wife. And when a husband and a wife allowed the gospel to lead them to this difficult place, yes, our desires are strong. The impulses go. Sin has twisted it. But when we will surrender this fully to God and we will operate in the way he intended, now we begin to see joy the way God intended it. 
Now we begin to see true pleasure because we're actually seeing true connection. It's not just about two bodies coming together, but two people, two souls, two hearts finding true connection as God intended. And then the fascinating thing is that when a husband and wife will truly surrender like this, and it isn't about just getting pleasure, but about trying to give it and connect with this other person, God is actually glorified. Here's how important the topic of sex is. God wrote an entire book about it. It's called the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Uh, many people believe that Solomon wrote this, this poem, this song, and, and it's a love story about possibly Solomon meeting his first wife. And Solomon's this rich, powerful, kingly dude, and he falls in love with this poor woman. But he's captivated by her beauty, and he pursues her. But what's fascinating is through chapters 1, 2, and 3, as, I mean, things are starting to get really, really steamy. They're, they're wanting each other badly. All of a sudden, he creeps up this phrase, do not arouse or awaken love before it's time. Almost like God's saying through the poem, you need to wait. You need to wait. I have a better plan. Don't just give in yet. Keep waiting. And they do. Because you come to chapter, the end of chapter 3 and you see the wedding. It's very Jewish in its flavor. Solomon comes riding in to get his bride and brings her back. And the way Jewish weddings worked is a husband would, they would enter this time of betrothment where they were in a sense considered married, but they wouldn't live together yet. They needed to give it a year to make sure that she wasn't pregnant and they were getting married because they had cheated and, and had sex before the wedding night. And so they, all this time that the husband's supposed to get in his house ready and then he would come to get his bride and bring her back and they would go into the wedding chamber. And, and, and there in the bridal room, Everyone knew what was taking place, the consummation of the marriage. And outside, everyone's getting a party ready. And that's what we see. Solomon comes riding in, gets his bride and brings her. And then chapter four hits. And this is what everyone loves to read. It's so erotic that Jewish men were not allowed to read it until they were age 30. This is what everyone gets caught up on. Chapter four and chapter seven. And they, they read it because that sexual impulse. We're curious. We, we want to fantasize. And we, we read this. And what happens is we end up missing a very crucial moment. Because you see chapter 4 happening. And it heads right into chapter 5. And I'll try and be very discreet. But in that moment, verse 1, the moment happens. And then something really bizarre occurs. Right as they come together, there's this voice. And it says, eat friends drink and be drunk with love. Now, your Bible translation probably is similar to mine. And, and, and throughout the Song of Solomon, it, it gives you try to headings, trying to let you know who's speaking. You know, like mine it uses he for referring to the groom and then she for the bride. And then there's these friends that are around. And, and so mine says others. So you're imagining it's the people who are outside and they're like, yay, they're married. It's all set. You know, and the party continues. Other translations say that this is the poet, that this is the poet just entering in to the story for a moment, saying this is a beautiful moment. But I have a different opinion. You see, I believe this is actually God. Because you see, no one else should be allowed into that bedroom except the husband and the wife. This is for them. This is a private, sacred moment. But how do you keep an omnipresent God out of a bedroom? You can't. He's everywhere. 
And he's the one who's created man, created woman, created sex, designed this to be brought together. And so when someone starts to actually do it in the way God has designed it, I think he finds pleasure. It brings him joy. That means this is, in a sense, an act of worship. And that's why he says to them, enjoy this, you guys. I've created this for you. It isn't just to make babies. It is to help bring a bonding. It is help to bring connection. A connection with one another, not just on the physical level, but emotionally, mentally, and even spiritually. Which means that this can become an act of worship. We can actually seek after God through this. Because it isn't about what we just try to get from it. It becomes how we can give to the other. So let me just talk to three different groups. First, if you were not a follower of Jesus, I want you to realize the more important thing for you is not to figure out, do I abide by these God rules or just our culture's rules? The first thing for you to figure out is, what about Jesus? If this story is true, that Jesus really did die on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins— that's what you need to wrestle with. You don't need to worry yet about how do I change my behavior in the bedroom or on the computer. What you need to wrestle with is, did Jesus really die on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins? If he did, then he's calling you to follow him. That's the first thing you need. I don't want you thinking that I'm now calling you to some sort of legalism and you've got to obey it with your body in this way. I want you to see the true story. God loved you so much. He didn't just create you. He died for you. And he wants you to be doubly his. If you are already a follower of Jesus, but you're not married, it's difficult. That sexual impulse is strong. And yet God is calling you to wait. Not because he's trying to rob you of joy. He's trying to protect your heart. He doesn't want you to have these sexual scars. And if you already have them, he wants to heal you of them. And he wants you to trust him. If you've ever fasted from food as a way to grow spiritually, to be drawn close to God, you'll, you'll have hunger pangs. And most people would advise you that those hunger pangs are to remind you to pray, to seek after God. For the scripture says that man does not live by bread alone, but by the very words of God. And so when you have that hunger pang, your body's saying, I need food, that's your reminder. No, what I need more than food is I need God. If you're single, I'm going to encourage you to use your time as an unmarried person like fasting. That when those sexual desires come up and you find yourself wanting to head to the computer, you're wanting to head down to the bars, you're wanting to go back to that guy, that girl, that instead you surrender that. You say, God, I need you more than I need sex. Because sex isn't just about finding physical pleasure. It's about connection. And the connection that you need above all other things is Jesus. And so let this drive you deeper into the gospel. Because I believe that God has far better days ahead of you. And also, I need you to hear, the goal is not marriage. You are not a less than because you're not married. You're not being deprived of anything because you're not in a sexual relationship. The relationship you need is Christ. And so find your fulfillment and satisfaction in him. Some of the same can be said to the married people in the room. You need to first find your satisfaction in Christ. He is far more satisfying than the bedroom. And I truly believe that when you find your identity in Jesus, you can now bring that into the bedroom and you will love and serve one another. And so married people, 
I want to encourage you. You seek after Jesus and you don't seek to try to just get pleasure. Don't do the household chores so that your husband or wife will be really impressed and then be with you that night. Instead, you seek to serve them and love them and you seek to bring pleasure to them because their body has been given to you as a gift from God. So you love it, you care for it, and you seek to bring them joy and pleasure. And when we do this, it actually honors God. Paul says in there, so glorify God in your body. But as I said in the beginning, we are all sexually broken. Not a single person in this room has done this perfectly. This is difficult. Sin has messed this area up so badly. So I want you to realize that you are forgiven. And that's what I want you to take in these next moments. So let God's forgiveness just wash over you as we remember the cross of Jesus, realizing that it even extends into this area. But also, if you are struggling, maybe you right now are in an affair. I'm going to tell you, get out of it. It's not beneficial. It's not helpful. If you are returning back to pornography, it's not beneficial. It's not for your good. If you need help, I'm going to encourage you. Seek after me or one of the elders. Or maybe you already have kind of a spiritual mentor in life, someone that you trust. And I'm going to encourage you, come clean. Bring it into the light. Don't let this fester. Because the more you try and keep it in the dark, the more it's going to create that disconnect with your spouse and with your God. Instead, as you expose it and let the gospel of Christ come in and God's grace wash over you, yeah, you're probably going to have to go through some embarrassment. But trust me, it's going to be beneficial. Because God loves you. And he wants you to find a connection with your spouse. And he wants you to have connection with him. So that's what these next few moments are for. For us to connect. I want us to connect with God. And to surrender this area of our life. So if you need to confess during this time of communion, please do so. If you need to pray about something else, use these moments. And let God's forgiveness wash into your life and call you to something better because he really wants you to have joy. So Heavenly Father, I just pray right now in these next holy moments, you would minister to us. God, I pray for the person that is just shattered sexually, that they would begin to find healing. God, if they need to talk to someone, give them the courage to do so, to find that one person that they know they can open up to who will love them and help them and hold them accountable so that they can come into the life that you called them to live. God, I pray for the marriages in this room, that you'd help them to be strong, that there would be true connection. God, I pray that if anyone is having difficulties right now in their marriage, that they'd be able to sit down and talk and communicate and, and show true love, that husbands would die to themselves for the sake of their wives, that their wives would submit to their husbands, that we would have Christ-centered relationships, and that we'd even see it extend into the bedroom. God, I just ask for your forgiveness. We as a people have tried to use sex to create love. And yet love is found in you. So God, help us to first connect with you. And then for the married people in this room, that, that your love for us would be found within the relationship and even in the bedroom. God, I want to see us be healthy, whole people. So that's why I just ask these next few moments that you just work, you'd cleanse, you'd wash, You'd help us to find healing. God, help us to surrender every single part of our life to you.
because you gave everything for us. So Father, we come now. Take of this bread. Take of this cup. We remember the body of Jesus, which went through hell for us. The blood that was shed. How his life was fully spent so that we could be purchased and be returned to you, our rightful creator and owner. So God, we come now. We do this in remembrance of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.